Okay, uh, I invite you guys to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We're now halfway through our series through 1 John as we uh, are answering this question that John is asking us, whose side are you on, right? So, so the, the picture that John is, is, is creating throughout this entire book is there are two groups of people, those who are Christians and those who are not. Uh, and, and specifically, the, the, the whole reason for writing, you have this church split, this group of people that uh, within the church who are proclaiming false things about Jesus, and then they end up leaving the church. And so John is writing to his audience saying, here are people who are believers, and this is a group of people who are claiming to, believe, to be believers but are not. Uh, and, and so he, he's, he's fleshing this out for us. What are kind of the characteristics of a believer? How can we tell which side we're on, that we are b- Christians uh, or just Christians in name only, that we are believers or we are not? Like, how can we flesh that out? How can we know for certain what are some things and that, that, we, that, that, that will define that for us? And so we can we, uh, continue along that, uh, that quest this morning to answer that question, whose side are you on? First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, is where we're going to be this morning. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, it says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, that it challenges us, that it shapes us and molds us. God, I thank you that, uh, that you speak to us from your word. God, that we, we aren't left to to, uh, to fend for ourselves adrift in a world of ideas and philosophies, but God, that you have communicated reality, you have communicated truth to us from your word. And God, I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts and our minds through your word. God, that you would comfort those who need comfort, that you will convict those who need conviction. God, that you will speak in a powerful way to each of our hearts and our minds so that you will mold us and shape us further in the image of Jesus. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to us this morning and hearts that are ready to apply it. God, we love you and praise you. It's in the wonderful holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. One of the things that I love about history is that when you're studying it, you get some really crazy stories. Like as you, as you learn history and as you, uh, as you, as you kind of study what events have happened in the past, you get some really strange stories. One of my absolute favorites 
is a story that takes place while Caligula is emperor of Rome. So Caligula is emperor of the Roman Empire, and if you know anything about Caligula, he was crazy. I mean, not just like he was kind of a bad ruler. He was crazy. Like there were, you have uh, kind of on the on the spectrum of Roman rulers, you have like Octavius or Caesar Augustus as kind of the pinnacle of leadership and and political savvy and being a really a really good leader in Rome. And then you have a bunch of really bad leaders, and then you have Caligula, like just absolutely insane. And I'll give you an example of that with this story. So Caligula decided he wanted to attack the island of Britain. He was going to take the Legion army. They had uh, conquered all the way up to modern-day France, and they were going to take the army, and they were going to go attack the island of Britain. So he gets all of the army together, and the way the story goes is that the, the sea was choppy, and the weather wouldn't permit, and so they couldn't get over to the island. Uh, he had all his armies there and were frustrated by the weather. Uh, and so Caligula, this is what like a normal human being would do. Uh, Caligula should have just given up, given some rousing speech to his men of how, you know, that this is just de- delaying the inevitable, that Rome will conquer this island, that we will have our day, uh, that we're just giving them another year or whatever, and then disband the army and go home, right? That's what a normal guy would do. Not Caligula. What Caligula did uh, is he decided that clearly his arch nemesis is none other than the god Poseidon. That has, because that's the only explanation. The only reason they can't get to England is because the, the, the waters are choppy, and so clearly his arch nemesis is the god Poseidon. And he declares war on Poseidon. And so he decides to, to, to tell his army, go into the water and slash at the water with your swords. So picture thousands of Roman soldiers, like in their little like tunic things, like lifting up their tunics, getting in the water, like, like looking at each other, like, you know this is dumb, right? Like, are, we're not, we can't, do, we're just slashing at the waves. But they do. The whole Roman army gets out into the water and just starts slashing away at the water uh, with their swords until finally Caligula is like, yep, we won. Come on out. And they all come out of the water, and he commands his soldiers to pick up seashells and other things from the beach as trophies of war for his conquest against the god Poseidon. Right? The whole time I'm picturing this story, we think of how crazy Caligula is, but the whole time I think of the story, I think of the, the people doing it. Like everybody under Caligula knows that this is dumb. Like, there's, there's not one guy who thinks, yeah, we're going to take out Poseidon by slashing the, the waves. This is the right move. You know, everybody from the generals under Caligula to the soldiers actually hacking at the waves with their swords, they all think this is dumb, right? Like, everyone sees through it. And yet, not one person tells Caligula, hey, let's not do that, right? This is a not a good idea. Even if we were going to wage war against Poseidon, and even if Poseidon existed, I don't think hacking at the waves is going to really be that much of a death blow to him. So let's not do that uh, uh, course of action. But nobody says it. You get thousands of Roman soldiers hacking away at the water, and nobody says a word. And what that screams to me is that there are a group of people, a ton of people, generals to soldiers, who have no confidence in approaching Caligula. Right? They, they are not confident when they approach the emperor, because this guy's crazy. He could take off their head in a moment. Right? And so they don't, they don't want to co- say the wrong thing before the emperor. They walk on eggshells. They don't want to suggest that he might be making a really dumb decision with this. Like They all just go along with it. And so in order to make sure they stay on a, a, the right page with the emperor because they're not confident in their relationship with him, they just, they just walk on eggshells and they do things to try to stay on the right page with him. They do things to try to stay on good terms with him, like going out into the ocean and taking their sword and beating the waves. A- and so many of us, approach our relationship with God in the same way. We aren't confident in our relationship with him. 
we don't think we can approach him in a, in a confident way. We aren't sure how we stand b- with him. And so, and so we end up uh, uh, doing things to try to appease him. We end up doing penance, doing things to try to, to make sure that we're on good terms because we're not confident. So we, we end up going to church and reading our Bible and saying prayers and doing all of these things to try to make sure, like, hey, we're still on, we're still on good terms, right? We're still, we're still good. We, we give money to the church and we give money to charitable causes because we're like, hey, you saw that, right? Like, you saw what I just did. Like, we, are, we approach God with absolutely zero confidence in our relationship with him as if he's a, a dictator that we just need to make sure we're still on good terms with. And so we do acts, we do things in our life, in our, our religious observances. We check off all these boxes and we do things in order to appease this dictator and to make sure that we stay on good terms. There's no confidence in our walk with God at all. But this is what John wants to, to teach us in this text this morning. If, that, if that's you at all, and you, you, you lack confidence in your walk with the Lord, you lack confidence in coming before God, this is what John wants to teach us this morning. We can have confidence before God because of the work in Jesus, of Jesus in us. We can have confidence when we approach the Lord because of what Jesus has done in us. And John kind of fleshes out this argument in three points and then even goes on and elaborates on it a little bit. So all of this is based on this premise that John uh, teaches us at the beginning of this text. The first thing that John teaches us is that Jesus brings about love in his people. Jesus produces love in his people. Look with me in verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John starts out by saying, this is the message. And throughout the book of 1 John, when he says, this is the message, the, the, the phrase, the message, is a reference to the gospel. So John is saying, this is the gospel message that you've heard, that we as believers should love each other. So don't miss that. This is a a bold statement that John is making here in chapter 3. He's saying that this is an integral part of the gospel. This is something that you can't take away from the gospel message, that we as believers love each other. That's not usually included in our gospel presentations, right? We we think of, when we think of the gospel, we think of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection on the, uh, his life, death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and that by placing your faith in him, you can be saved. Right? That's the gospel message. That's the good news. And what John is saying here is there's a big part of it that we are missing out on if, if that's all that we say. Because what we're missing out on is the result of that salvation. It's not just that we get to go to heaven. It's that Jesus does a work in us and that we begin to love other people. The good news of salvation, the gospel, changes us from the inside out. It does a work in our hearts, it does a work in our minds. Jesus works in us by his grace, by his love, because of his death and resurrection. And he changes us and produces within us a love for other believers. So John says, this is the message that you've heard. This is the gospel, that you love one another. And he goes on and he gives us this illustration uh, in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John takes us back all the way to Genesis chapter 4 with the story from the Old Testament and trying to explain this picture to us. For those of you that don't know the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Adam and Eve, the first two people, they, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. They weren't their only kids. They had a bunch of other kids. These are just the only two 
that are in this story. And Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4 is where this comes from. Uh, what we learn from Genesis 4 is that Abel is a, uh, is a shepherd. He tends animals. Cain is uh, involved in agriculture. He produces uh, grains and wheats and, uh, and fruits and vegetables. And we also learn from the story that Abel is righteous. He has a walk with the Lord. He has faith in him. And Cain is not. What we find out in Genesis chapter 4 is that both of them decide to offer sacrifices to God. So they both come before the Lord, and Cain, uh, Abel offers from his flock a sacrifice to the Lord. Cain offers from his harvest a sacrifice to the Lord. And what we see in Genesis 4 is that God accepts the sacrifice of Abel, and he doesn't accept the sacrifice of Cain. God says, this one pleases me, and God says, this one doesn't. We find out in Genesis 4, we also see this in Hebrews 11, that the reason that God found Abel's sacrifice acceptable is that Abel offered it in faith. Abel wasn't trying to get something from God. Abel wasn't trying to, to, to win God's approval by offering the sacrifice. Abel wasn't offering a quid pro quo by saying, you know, as long as I do this for you, you do something for me. Abel was just offering a gift to the Lord in faith because he loves the Lord because he celebrates him. And so Abel offers the sacrifice in faith. Cain doesn't. Cain offers a sacrifice for any number of reasons that we could offer a sacrifice. So we, we do things for God as a quid pro quo, saying that I do this for you, you're going to do something for me. I give you this offering, you bless my life. I give money to the church, you increase my bank account. I, I serve the church, I, I serve your people, I go do these charitable things, and then, and then you make my life happier. You, you get rid of the, the problems that are in my life. We think that if we just do these things for God, God, you know, we'll be on good terms with God and he'll take care of us. So Cain offers this sacrifice and God doesn't find it acceptable. But Abel offers it and God finds it acceptable. And that makes Cain really mad. And Cain isn't mad at himself for offering an unacceptable offering. He isn't mad at God for choosing to take Abel's offering instead of his. Cain is mad at Abel. Because Abel's, as, as John tells us here, Abel's deeds are righteous. Abel has faith. Abel can offer a sacrifice that's pleasing to God, and he is different. Cain is different than him. Cain is unrighteous. Cain is wicked. Cain is offering sacrifices that aren't pleasing to God. And so that difference between them, that distinction, pleasing to God, not pleasing to God, righteous and wicked, has produced animosity and hatred within Cain for his brother. So Cain goes out into the field one day, and he murders his brother. That's the story of Cain and Abel. It's this really just heartwarming tale. Uh, this is the story that John is bringing our mind to in 1 John chapter 3. And this is illustrating what's happening here in the church that, that, in, that John is writing to in 1 John. That, that there are people who are believers and there are people who are claiming to be Christians but aren't. And he's drawing this comparison saying believers are like Abel because they love each other. Unbelievers, even those who claim to be Christians, are like Cain. And there's a lack of love for, their, for fellow believers. There's a lack of love for other people. This is the distinction that he's making. Th you can't get any less loving to your brothers than Cain. Right? Like literally, he murdered his brother. Like that is a, a, an astounding lack of love for his brother. And that's what John is making the comparison to, saying believers love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Unbelievers, even those who claim to be Christians, show a lack of love. And that means they look more like Cain than Abel. He says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world 
hates you. So he says, if you are like Abel, if you are righteous, if you are following the Lord, if you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if you you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus, people are not going to like you. The world is going to be against you. In fact, what John has in mind here for the church are this group of people that have split off, these these people who claim to be believers but are proclaiming false things about Jesus. They have shown an animosity to the believers. They have shown hatred to the believers. They have shown uh, 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 disrespect and disregard for these believers. And so John is saying that shouldn't surprise any of you. right? That shouldn't be shocking to any of you, that there's anger and hostility towards you because you're like Abel and they're like Cain. And Cain hates Abel. So he says, don't be shocked if the world doesn't like you. Don't be shocked If the world hates you, don't be shocked if people who proclaim to be Christians but aren't hate you. Don't be shocked at any of that because Cain hates Abel. Those who are in the dark hate those who are in the light. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So what John is saying is you and I can know as believers, that we have placed our faith in Jesus because Jesus does a work in us to well up within us a love for our fellow believers, an affection for them, a care for them, that, that believers are going to love people like Jesus because that's the work that Jesus does in our hearts. And if you look at your life and you say, I don't love people like Jesus, I don't have a love for believers, I don't, I don't have this kind of love that you, you're talking about, then you look more like Cain than Abel. And that's what John is saying here, the case that he's making. Believers, the result of their faith in Jesus is that Jesus does a work in their hearts and their lives to love other people, to love the church, to love the body. The believers are going to exhibit that love because that's the work of Jesus in their hearts and in their life. If that work isn't there, if there's a lack of love, if there's even animosity and hatred, if that exists, then you're more like Cain than you are like Abel. And he says, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in in him. It's the roundabout way of of finishing up this argument, saying if the love of fellow believers is not within you, if you don't love people like Jesus, if if that work isn't being done in your heart and in your life, that if you if you hate fellow believers or you lack this love, then you're more like Cain. And remember, Cain was a murderer. The, the outcome of that hatred is, is it, 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 to play out. It is, is murder. That's what Jesus says uh, in, in, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 5. Uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus says that uh, you've heard it said, uh, he's talking about anger. Uh, and he's saying, don't, don't, don't just not hate your brother. Because like, hatred, uh, he said, you've heard it said, do not murder. And Jesus says, don't even hate your brother because hatred leads to murder. Hatred is murder within your heart. Uh, and so that's what John is pointing out here, that this, I- if you have hatred towards fellow believers, if, if this love doesn't exist, you are much more like Cain. And you can't claim to be a follower of Jesus. Because a follower of Jesus has a work of Jesus in their heart and in their life to have love for fellow believers. Now, what does this love look like? Wh- what, how does it play out? I, we can't just say, like, I, oh, yeah, I think I love other believers. I think I have this love, or I, I, I'm not really sure. What does this love look like? John gives us a very specific picture in verse 16. By this we know love, 
that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So how did Jesus love the church? He gave up his life for the church. He gave up his life for you and for me. He didn't just throw us a bone here and there. He didn't just just say some kind words. He didn't just give the appearance of, of kindness and generosity. He laid down his life and died a torturous, gruesome death on the cross for us. That's the picture of love that Jesus is giving us. And John is saying that, that that's what the love looks like within us as believers, that just like Jesus laid down his life for the believers, we as believers lay down our lives for each other. We give up our selfishness. We give up our uh, our, our solo-ishness, our, 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 our personal freedoms, our personal rights, our personal preferences. We lay them all down for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we willingly give up all of that freedom for the sake of fellow believers. It says in verse 17, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So if you see fellow believers in need, if you have resources that can meet their need and you don't have a desire to meet their need, you don't go out of your way to try to meet it, you don't care about them, your heart closes towards them, uh, John is saying, how can you say that you love like Jesus? Because Jesus gave up his life for us. You can't give up a few dollars for your fellow believers. You can't give up some of your own freedoms, your own preferences, your own desires. You can't give them up for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why John concludes with this statement, Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. Let's give up our lives. Let's give up our preferences. Let's give up our own individuality and our own freedoms and our own rights. Let's give them up for the sake of each other, for the sake of our fellow believers, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love like Jesus. That's the kind of work that God does in our hearts, in our lives, a willingness to lay down ourselves for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters. That's the picture of love that John says you have if you're a believer. That's the work that God is doing in your heart to willingly lay down yourself, to lay down your life, to lay down your individuality and your freedom for the sake of your fellow believers in Christ. If you're clinging to yourself, and closing your heart to fellow believers and completely unwilling to give up yourself, to give up your own rights and preferences and abilities to freedom and rights, if you, if you, if you are clinging to, to selfishness and independence instead of laying down your life for believers, then John is saying you, you don't have that love like Christ. And you look more like Cain than Abel. There's a picture of this that is absolutely beautiful. It's a story that comes from the second century uh, that it was actually, it was shared a lot during the pandemic uh, because it, it related. Um, but during the second century, the, uh, there's what's known as the Antonine Plague. It broke out uh, throughout Eurasia, uh, specifically hit heavy in the, in the Roman Empire. And this, this plague broke out uh, mainly in cities, and it, it killed a large population of people. And so what people were doing is they were fleeing the cities. Rightly so, for self-preservation. That's where most of the, the dead were. That's where most of the, the contact was to disease. And so people were fleeing. They were, they were going out. They were uh, going to their country homes. They were, uh, you know, bunking with their cousins who lived in some villa somewhere. Uh, they, they, they were getting out of the city. Everyone except Christians. 
Christians made the decision that they were going to go into the cities, that they were going to stay in the cities during the Antonine Plague and tend to the sick, tend to the hurting, tend to those who needed help because they loved the people who were hurting. They loved the people who were dying. They loved their fellow brothers and sisters. And so at risk to their own health, at risk to their own life, they went into the cities and they cared for the people who were there. And the result, historians note, that this is one of the key moments in the growth of the church, that Christianity spread like wildfire after this, because they saw the love that the believers had for each other. They saw the, this sacrificial love, willing to give up their own safety, willing to give up their own life for each other, that they loved people that much that they were willing to give it all up to go into the cities that everybody was fleeing and to go care for them and love for them well and that was attractive to the world that was that was an amazing picture of the love of jesus that was an amazing picture of the gospel on display and so the christianity spread uh, spread like crazy among the cities and out into the villages in the roman empire at this time in the second century like that is incredible love that's the picture that we get here in 1 John. This kind of love that is willing to give up ourselves, our own preferences and rights, our own passions and desires, to lay them all down for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters. That is an amazing amount of love. And John is saying that if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, Jesus is doing a work in your heart and your life to well up within you that type of love. Because you understand just how deeply you've been loved by Jesus. Once you know how deeply Jesus has loved you, how much he has given up for you, then you're going to care about other people. You're going to start to love them like he did, like he does. So the question that John wants us to ask ourselves and, and each other is, does that love abide in your heart? Examine your life, examine yourself and say, do I love people like Jesus? Has this worked? taken place in my life? Is there evidence of the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus by the way that I love other people? Because if that love doesn't exist, if it isn't there, if even animosity is there towards fellow believers, then that's more than likely what John is saying. You're more like Cain than you are like Abel. And you haven't gone from death to life. You haven't gone out of the camp of Cain and into the camp of Abel. But the good news is that you are free to do that. You are free to go from Cain to Abel. You are free to go from death to life by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You loving other people is not the way that you earn God's approval. That is the natural result of you placing your faith in Jesus and being loved by him and knowing how forgiven you are by him. And so if you're, if you're questioning your life, you're examining yourself and saying, I don't think I fit in that category, I think I'm more like Cain, then the good news for you is that there is salvation that's available to you in Jesus. All you have to do is put your faith, hope, and trust in him. This is how much Jesus loves you. He has, he's died, risen again for you, for your salvation. You can go from death to life. John says, if you look at your life and you see this, this work being done in your life, that you love fellow believers like Jesus does. Notice what he says in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. This is what he teaches us. This is the second thing that, that John is saying. If we love like Jesus, 
then we don't need to fear the wrath of God. If we can see this work of Jesus being done in our lives, then we can know with confidence that we are part of the people of God. Notice what he says in 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So this is to people who are doubting. This is to people who are, are questioning, who are wondering, am I part of the people of God? John is writing to a group of people that are broken about this because they've just gone through this major split as believers where this group of people have gone off saying that they're true Christians. And John is writing to them saying, no, you guys have the truth. You guys have the gospel. And here's how you can know you're on the right side of this. Here's how you can know what, what is true, what is right, how you are part of it, how you can reassure your heart before him is that whenever your heart condemns us, you know that God is greater than your heart. He knows everything. So you can look at your life and say, I, I, I'm doubting. I, I, I feel like I, I've sinned one time too many. I feel like God is against me. I'm not sure how I stand before God. John's saying you can look at your life and say, if you can look at your life and say that I love people like Jesus, that Jesus has done this work in me, then that is a constant test right before your eyes to, to remind you and reassure you that you are a follower of God. That you can have confidence even when your heart is condemning you, even when it feels like, like God can't possibly love you. If you see a work of Jesus in your life to well up a love for fellow believers in you, if you see that work in your life, that is a constant barometer for you that reminds you even in your lowest moments that I have a right relationship with God and can instill confidence in you. Because if we love like Jesus, we don't have to fear the wrath of God. A every now and then, my truck is one of those where you, you know, like press the button to start it. And, uh, and it won't start if the key is not in the vehicle, right? Uh, and every now and then while I'm driving, the key will fall out of my pocket. Uh, because I, you know, I don't have it in front of me. So it'll fall out of my pocket while driving. And it'll go in between, like, the seat and the, the, uh, the console, which means it's gone forever uh, in this empty void of space. And uh, and w I'll I'll get to where I'm going, and I'll get out of the car. I won't notice that the key is out of my pocket, uh, and it, it'll be a, you know an hour or two later, and I'll feel my pocket and think, I don't have my key, and then I'll get worried and think I can't go home because I don't have my key to start the car, but then I remember I got here, right? Like I'm here because I had the key, so the key has to be somewhere in my car. I'll go out to the car and I'll put my foot on the pedal and I'll start the I'll press the button and it'll start, which means I don't know where the key is. It could be, you know, it, it could be under the truck for all I know, like hidden in a wheel somewhere. But it, it is, I know I have it because the car starts. It, that's what John is, you know, is telling us with, with this love that we have for fellow believers. If you can see this work that's been done in your life, then you might not feel that great th today. You might be, uh, you might not, you might lack confidence in your walk with the Lord. You might feel low and broken and suffering, but if you can see this work that Jesus has done in your life, then that can reassure your heart. Like starting the car, you can say, you know, I may not feel like it today, but I know that I'm part of the people of God. I know that I am loved by God, and I have been changed by him. I have been saved by him, and I have confidence in that. And so if you are doubting today, if you are struggling today, it, one of two things is true. You're doubting today because you're like Cain, and you haven't gone from death to life. And so doubting is natural and reasonable because this work hasn't been done in your heart. This work hasn't been done in your life, and the call on your life is to go from death to life. But others of you are doubting today because you are racked with guilt. You are riddled with shame. 
and you've placed your faith and hope in Jesus, you have trusted in him, and you know that, and you believe that, but you feel like today maybe God doesn't like you, maybe God doesn't love you, maybe this relationship you have with him isn't perfectly set, and what John is writing to you today is to say that if you can see this work of Jesus in your life, if you can see the love for others welling up within you, then that is meant to be a a reminder to you that, yes, you are saved, that you you are a follower of Jesus, that you have seen this work that Jesus has already done in your heart and done in your life, and that should give you confidence. That should calm your worries. And then John goes further. And not just talking about the confidence that we can have if we're lacking confidence. But he talks about, he fleshes out what that confidence leads to. And, uh, th- and what it says is if we love like Jesus, then we can have confidence in our prayers. If we love like Jesus, if we see that work done in our hearts and our minds and our life, then we, can lo- we, then we can be confident in the way that we pray before the Lord. This is what he says in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So John says, and I, I mentioned this morning during our prayer time uh, before the service at 9, uh, if uh, I mentioned this morning, this kind of s- came out of nowhere to me as I'm studying the text. John is making this very clear argument about our confidence before him as being saved. And then he throws in here, oh, by the way, you get what you ask for if you pray. Like this seems like coming out of nowhere. But what John is saying here, he's fleshing out this idea of having confidence before God. What does that mean? How does that, how does that play out in our lives? And John is saying, if you have confidence before God, then you can go before him in prayer and know that he's going to answer your prayers, that he's going to respond. And you can pray bold prayers and big, big prayers and know that the God who created all things is going to respond to you in prayer because you have a right relationship with him. You have been set right with him. You are on good terms. You can be confident. And so you can approach him in prayer and know that he's going to respond. And know that he's going to answer you. And that you'll have what you ask. This is like uh, if you're trying to ask for vacation at work. If you're on good terms with your boss, then you can know going in that if I ask for this vacation, the boss is going to approve it. If you're not on good terms with your boss or you have a a lack of confidence there in your relationship, you might go in questioning and not really sure. I'm not really sure if they're going to grant this or not. I'm I'm just going to go in and and we'll see, you know, uh, and, and, you know, hopefully they do. Maybe they won't. Uh, There's no confidence there at all. John is saying we can go in and we can say, hey, can I have this vacation off? And we're on good terms with our boss, so we know we're going to get it. Like, that's, our, that's how what a prayer looks like for believers. When we are confident before him, we can go before the throne and say, God, this is what I'm praying for, this is what I'm asking, and we can know he's going to respond because we're on good terms with him. Now, this isn't a blank check, right? This isn't, well, that sounds pretty nice. God, can I get a million dollars? That would be great. Uh, and I have confidence in you because we're on good terms. Uh, this is not a blank check. What John is writing here is the idea that you and I, because of our faith in Jesus, Jesus has changed our hearts. He has changed our minds, and he is in the process of shaping and molding us to look more like Jesus. And so we can have confidence when we pray before the Lord, because our prayers, as the Holy Spirit works on our life, and as we grow to look more like Jesus, our prayers are going to be more in line with him. 
And so we can be confident going before him and asking for things because we're going to go before him and ask for things that he already wants to do. This is like James says in the book of James. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then he also says you have, uh, you don't have even after you ask because you ask without faith. You ask incorrectly. The idea is that you're asking for things that aren't in alignment with the Lord. But when we are people who have been set free from sin and death, who have been changed from the inside out by Jesus, then we can go before God with confidence saying, I am going to ask you for this, and I know you'll give it because I know it's aligned with your heart. Again, to go back to that analogy with vacation for your boss, that, that if you're on good terms with your boss, it's not just that you know they'll approve it, but they know you're not going to ask for vacation on a very, very inconvenient time. That you're not going to go in as an accountant and say, hey, can I get all of tax season off? Like, can I, that's, that's really when I want to take a family vacation, or, you know. Uh, or if, if you're working in a church, you're not going to go up and say, hey, can I get Easter off? Like, this is just the, the, the one day I just really don't want to be here. And, like, like you're, you're not going to ask uh, things that you know the boss isn't going to agree to. So as you're on good terms with your boss, you know that they're going to approve it because you're on good terms, but you also know they're going to approve it because you're asking things that align with them. And that's how we can approach our prayer to God, that we go before him with confidence saying, I know you're going to approve this. I know I'm going to get what I, what I ask in this because what I'm asking is in alignment with your heart. We can have confidence in our prayers. It means that you as an individual can pray big prayers before God. You can ask to see God move in your hearts and in your life. We as a church can ask to see God move in our midst to, to break out with revival, to see people coming to know Christ, to see people coming to look more like Jesus. We can ask big prayers that align with the heart of God and know that he's going to respond. Because we can have confidence before him. John goes on and says, this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment, uh, uh, commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So I want to say clearly again, you loving other people is not the way that's going to get God to love you. What John is highlighting in the text is that the first thing that God is calling you to do is to place your faith and hope in Jesus, to trust in his son, and that he will do a work in your heart that will lead you to love other people. And so you can know, you know, uh, if you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus, he's going to do a work in your heart. And you can have confidence that if you have seen Jesus do a work in your heart to well up within you love for your fellow believers, then you can be confident that your, your, your faith took, you know, that your, 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 your relationship with God is right. And even when you're doubting, even when it feels low, if you can see this work of Jesus in your life, you can have confidence knowing that you are on good terms with God. It's my prayer that every single one of you would be able to have confidence and know that you are on good terms with God. Because that doesn't just play out in knowing that your eternity is secure. That plays out today. That plays out in our prayers as individuals and as a church. If we are confident that we are on the right page with God, then we're going to pray bold prayers and we're going to see God move in a powerful and mighty way. And so my hope and prayer for every single one of you is that you would know with confidence that you have been set right with God, that you would have a right relationship with him. And the way we're going to know that is if we see the love of God on display in your life for other believers. So my challenge to you and the challenge from uh, John to you is to, to evaluate your life. 
see if this love is on display. See if this love is there, this sacrificial, self-giving love. See if it's on display in your life. And if it's not, ask the question, how do I go from death to life? How do I go from Cain to Abel? And place your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus, you're evaluating your life, and you realize, I look more like Cain than Abel, then this morning what God is commanding you to do, what he is calling you to do, is to hope in Jesus, to trust in him as your Savior. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. In just a second, we're gonna, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And while we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love for you to come up, and I would love to pray with you and talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, or you, if you don't want to come up here, that's fine. We'll have people in the back who would love to talk with you about going from death to life, from Cain to Abel, and from having confidence in your walk with the Lord. And, and if you know you're a believer, if you can see this work of Christ in your life, you can see this love, then the call to you is to let it abound. Love your fellow believers as Christ loved them. Lay down your life, lay down your, 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 your own uh, rights, your own freedoms, your own preferences. Lay yourself down for the sake of your fellow believers and have confidence knowing that as you do that, that that is evidence of your walk with the Lord and you can go before God with these big, powerful prayers. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love that you have for us. And the love that was on display on the cross, that Jesus gave up his life on the cross for us. That he endured ferocious beatings, that he endured whippings, that he endured uh, nails being driven through his arms and his legs, that he endured an agonizing death for us. God, I pray that we would love people like you. That we, that same love would be on display in the way that we love other people. God, I pray that, that we would love people like the Christians in the second century, love the people around them, and they would be evident to our community that this place is abounding in love for one another. And then the only, uh, the only possible cause of that is that you are here working in and through us, dwelling in our midst. God, I pray for the believer who is struggling, who feels broken, who feels guilt and shame. God, I pray that this morning that you would illuminate in their lives the work that you have done in their hearts and their minds to this point as a reminder for them that they are believers, that you have a right relationship with them, and that they have a right relationship with you. God, I pray you would inspire confidence and boldness in our church as we come before you in prayers. God, that we would pray things that align with your heart and see you move in a powerful way. God, for anyone here who doesn't know you, God, I pray this morning would be the morning they go from Cain to Abel, that they go from death to life. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.